Alrighty, welcome to E Talmud 2.0. We are now on Yud Aleph Amud Aleph 11a in Chagiga. We are on the the last word of the second line if you're looking at the traditional text. And um, we are in the middle of trying to figure out in which case of Mi'ilah, where you misuse or misappropriate consecrated property, the property of the temple treasury, what case there is like a mountain suspended by a thread? In other words, does the law not reflect much of a scriptural basis, but rather um, it's just based on the oral tradition of our sages? So that's what we're going to do right now. We're going to continue with this discussion. Ela Misefa. Rather, it's the second part of the following Mishnah, which says as follows. So if you, if, um, so again, we're talking about the temple treasurer and the treasurer, of course, everything is, is given, is entrusted to him. Any, 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 any part of any money or any, um, bricks are entrusted to him um, for the sake of the temple. So what if he took the brick that had been entrusted to him and then he built it into his house? It's not considered mi'ila, it's not a considered misappropriation until he dwells underneath that brick um, um, of uh, the value of a pruta, meaning it has to be for more than 10 seconds, it has to be that you dwelt under that brick for as much time that it takes to get to the pruta, which actually isn't very much money. So now let's see. So why is this? Why are you saying that this law? Oh, sorry, I'm sorry. But now we have a question. When you build the brick into your home, don't you change the brick? Meaning, don't you have to kind of smooth out the brick or, you know, cut off a little bit of it to make sure that it fits in? And if that's the case, if that is the case, then mali dar u mali lo dar. And if you have to change the brick, then why does it make a difference if you live under it or not for you to have done the transgression of mi'ila, um, for you to have been considered misappropriating it? The moment that you change the brick, the moment that you smooth it out, you shave off a little bit of it, already that is you taking it out, that is you misusing the brick of the treasury, so of the temple treasury. So why do we say that you're only going to be doing mi'ila if you built it into your house. So we end, and then we say, it's this law that seems to be counterintuitive or doesn't seem to make much sense. This is the law of Mi'ila that is like a mountain that is hung by thread. I'm sorry, that is, um, this is like the mountain that is uh, suspended by a hair. And, um, and uh, because this really doesn't make any sense, the moment you change the brick, you should, you know, if you know scripturally, you'd have to, you would then already have done minila. But then we say no, that's not the case. So my question, what's so difficult about this ruling, that we say that it's like a mountain suspended by a thread? Dilma kidarav. Maybe this ruling is like Rav explained. because Rav said, alpi aruba. The case here is where you did not shave off the brick. You didn't do anything to the brick. You just put it on an opening in the roof. You had a hole the size of this brick. You put the brick in. You didn't change it at all. So we say, in. if you dwell under it, then yeah, you have done me'ila. And if you didn't dwell underneath it, then you did not do me'ila. 
and this is a this has this is a logical scripturally based law and therefore we have yet to find the law of meila that is like a mounted suspended by a thread by by a hair i'm sorry elali olam kidaraba rather the case of meila that's like the mountain suspended by a hair is like the case of rava um, and what was the case of rava it's where you have a sender and an agent and the sender became aware that the money that he gave the agent was consecrated property where we said that if then the agent goes through with the agency the agent is the one that has done meila and as for your question um that this would does make a lot of sense that the agent should be the one that is liable for meila because the sender the moment he understood that it was consecrated property canceled the agency um and no different than any time somebody removes consecrated money and uses them for a mundane purpose that's exactly what the agent did so it would make sense but we're going to say that it actually doesn't make sense. Hasam meida yada de ikazuzi de hektish. Because there, in the regular case, where you just use your consecrated property, um, where they use their consecrated property for, for, um, for mundane things, hasam meida yada de ikazuzi de hektish. There, the person that misuses... He knows that he has consecrated coins or consecrated property within his home. So we, we tell him that you have transgressed because you could have been more careful. You should have been more careful. You should have looked into it and found out and made sure that I'm, you are not using hectish coins. So there it makes a lot of sense that we would say you are, um, you know, that um, in that type of case, you will have um, done me'ila. But um, but here but yada but here the agent, he didn't know that the sender had consecrated coins in his property, and if so, there was no way he possibly could have known. And if so, this was a case of an onus where he would have had. There was no way to get around it. It wasn't a mistake. It wasn't. It wasn't. Um, he wasn't being. He wasn't being lazy he he had no idea that there was ever consecrated property in the sender's domain and yet we're still saying that he has done meila that he is liable for meila that's completely counterintuitive and has no scriptural basis therefore this is the case that is like a mounted suspended by a hair and the only reason we come to this conclusion is because of an oral tradition that our sages had Okay, now we're going to get to the next part. Of, now we're going to analyze the next part of our Mishnah. Mikra muat v'halachos merubo. So the Mishnah has told us that there are these cases where there are very few scriptural references, but there are many laws that come out of those very few scriptural references. And now we're going to talk about this idea. Tana. So we learned in Abraisa. Negaim v'ahalos mikra muat v'halachos merubos. The laws of Tzara'as, which is negayim, um, or tzara'at, which is that form of leprosy, that ritualistic leprosy. So the laws of tzara'at, the ahalos, and the laws of becoming um, becoming impure by being under the same roof. Ahalos means tent, by being in the same tent or being under the same roof as a dead body. 
mikra muat. We see that there are very few scriptural references about these laws, the halachos murubos, and yet there are many laws that come from those few scriptural references. So now the Gemara is going to ask, Negayim Mikramuat, are you telling me that Tsaras has very few scriptural references? Negayim Mikramurubahu, that's not true. There are, uh, Tsaras has many scriptural references. So Amarav Papa, Rav Papa says, Hachikamar, this is really uh, what the Brisa means. Negayim Mikramurubah Halachos Muatos, when it comes to Tsaras, they actually have many scriptural references, and yet the laws are very few, right? There's, um, there, there's not you don't learn many laws from those many scriptural references. Ahalos, whereas when it comes to becoming impure, you know, from being in a tent with a dead body, mikramuit, there's very little scriptural reference. Palachos murubos, and yet there are many laws on this point. So now the Gemara is going to ask, okay, that's very interesting that the Bryce is teaching us this. So my nafkam, you know, what difference? What practical difference does it make? E so it's what it's the answer is is that it's telling you as follows. If you are in doubt about something that has to do with Tsarhas, I in Bikrai, then all you have to do is go to the scriptures, go to the Torah, and you'll find your answer because everything is very clearly spoken out in the scriptural references. But if you have a que- question, you're in doubt about something when it comes to impurity that it comes from being under the same roof as a dead body. Then you can find your answer in the Mishnah because there's a lot of law about it, but very few scriptural references. Okay, so it's really just telling us where to turn if you have a question in either one of those topics. Okay, then we talked about the next part of the Mishnah is Dinan, which is monetary law. And the Mishnah said about monetary law that it has real scriptural support. And what the Gemara is going to talk about now is that when it says it it, it has scriptural support, that would seem to say that it has scriptural support, but is not written explicitly in scriptures. And we're going to ask the following. Michtav Ksivan, monetary law is written explicitly in the Torah. Why are we saying there's only support in the Torah for it? So we answer, Lo Rebbe. No, it's for the case of Rebbe. That's where we don't have, we have support, but we don't have explicit, um, explicit law. What is the case of Rabbi? Ditanya, because we learned in Abraisa. Rabbi Omer, Rabbi says, Nefesh tachas nefesh. Um, a soul for a soul. The case is, which you had two men that are fighting. Then they both want to kill each other. Then you had a woman who's um, just standing there. And she's inadvertently struck and killed by one of the men. And the sages tell us that that's a capital crime. And the man that killed the woman is actually... Um, um, is, is killed. Um, but Rebbe disagrees. And he says, when it says you do a soul for a soul, mamon, it actually refers to monetary compensation um, because you need to have intention to kill the person you are intending to kill. And here he killed a bystander, obviously did not intend to kill her. So Rebbe feels that when it says a soul for a soul, it just means you have to pay the value of the woman's soul, um, which is basically how much she could be sold for as a slave, as a servant. Now, Rebbe is going to explain where he gets this from. Why does he say this? Ata Omer Mamon. Now, you're telling me that the verse is referring to monetary compensation. Oh, Eno Ella Nefesh Mamish, but perhaps that's not the case. Maybe it's referring to a life, 
like an actual soul. You you get killed for doing this. So we answer. So Rebbe explains Nemro Nasina Lamata. In the next verse, it talks about giving. And in our verse, it talks about giving. Um, so we say, just like in the next case, the giving was monetary. So to here, when it says giving, that you give a soul for a soul, it must mean that you give money. Um, so that's how Rebbe teaches us that it's a monetary compensation. It's not written explicitly in scripture like this, but there's certainly scriptural support based on the Xerah Shava that it says Nisin, that it says to give in both of these verses. Okay. Um, Avodos. Now we're going to go on to the next part of the Mishnah. Avodos. The Mishnah had said that um, sacrifice, the sacrificial services, that they have scriptural support. And now we're going to ask, Michtav Ksivan, what are you talking about? They don't just have scriptural support that's written explicitly in the Torah. The, the concepts of of um, of the scriptural service. So we answer lo ella No, we have where we only have scriptural support and not explicit uh, explicit law is when it comes to bringing the blood um, of the sacrifice to the altar. Detanya. What's the case? So we learned in a brisa. The Pasik says you shall bring the blood. And the Bryce explains that when it says you shall bring the blood, it's not a reference to actually the bringing of the blood to the altar. It's a reference to um, being mekabel, um, receiving the blood in a vessel. Now in this case, the Torah refers to the receiving of the blood with a word, it refers to it with the word of v'hikriv, which means you shall bring. Um, as it's written, v'hikriv ha'kohen esakol v'hikter ha'mizbecha, where it's like it, we know that the word hikriv uh, means to bring and not to accept or receive. As the verse says, he shall bring it all and cause it to go up in the smoke on the altar. V'omar mar, master said, z'oholacha se'varim la'kevesh. This is a reference to bringing the limbs of the sacrifice to the ramp of the altar. So we see that the word vihikrivu um, generally means bringing something to the altar. Yet here, where the Torah is using this word to teach us about receiving the blood in a holy vessel. Lememra, in order to teach us the holacha lotafke michlal kabbalah, to teach us that the service of bringing the blood um, should not be excluded from the rules that apply to receiving the blood. Meaning, because the bringing of the blood is not a necessary, it's not a necessary step. You could theoretically, um, you could theoretically slaughter the animal right next to the altar, and then you wouldn't need to bring the blood. But the re- so what the Torah is telling us here is that is that it it's using the language. It's using the word bring to teach us about Kabbalah, to teach us about receiving, to teach us that they are going to have the same law. And just like receiving the blood is a is a 
is considered a full-fledged part of the sacrificial service, so too is the bringing of the blood to the altar considered a full-fledged part of the service, even though it is not a necessary part of the service because you theoretically could slaughter right next to the altar. Now, what does it mean it's a full-fledged part of the service? So, for instance, you would need it to be done by a Kohen. It would have to be done by the priest. It has to have certain intentions, and it can have certain negative intentions. So, that's what we're referring to. So, here we have the case of a sacrificial service a law about sacrificial services that's not written explicitly in the Torah, but certainly there's strong scriptural support for it. We're going to ask the, now we're going to go to the next part of the Mishnah. Taharovs, the laws of purity. And the Mishnah says there's scriptural support. Now we're going to ask, but wait a minute, aren't, isn't the laws of purity written explicitly in the Torah? So we answer, No, it's necessary, meaning... The case where we only have support and not explicit mention is when it comes to what is the shear of the mikvah, what is the um, what is the, the 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 minimum measure required to have a kosher mikvah, the body of water in which you go into in order to purify yourself. The loksiva, because it's not written explicitly, what the that, that a mikvah has a certain measurement, minimum measurement, which we happen to know is 40 sa'ah. Sa'ah is a Talmudic uh, measurement. Ditanya, because it's not, it's not written anywhere. Ditanya, because we learned in Abraisa. Verachatz es b'saro b'amayim. The verse says, you shall immerse in the water. B'mei mikvah. This teaches us that you have to immerse in the waters of a mikvah, which is gathered water. Es kol b'saro, the verse continues to tell us that you have to wash your entire flesh. This teaches you that you have to immerse in an amount of water that is sufficient for your whole body to enter at one time. The kamahim, and how much is that? Ama al ama barum shalosh amos. It's an ama by an ama by the height of three amos. So it's three cubic amos of water. An ama is about three. Is about um, is about one and a half to two feet. The Shiarukhachamim, then our sages came along and said, May mikvah are based on that, on three cubic amos of water. Our sages came along and said, May mikvah arba'im sa'ah has to be at least 40 sa'ah. So this, this measurement is not written specifically in the scriptures, but there is scriptural support for this measurement. Okay? Next one, Tumos. This is the next part of the Mishnah. The Mishnah said that the laws of contamination are becoming impure. They have scriptural support, and now we're going to ask Mechtav Ksivan. That is much more than scriptural support. It's written explicitly in the Torah. The laws of um, of Tuma are written specifically in the Torah, explicitly in the Torah. So we answer Lo It's coming. No, where it's necessary to say this that it just has support, but it's not written explicitly, is to teach us that a lentil size of a sheretz, which is one of the eight creeping creatures that conveys impurity, that if you touch a lentil-sized piece, that can convey tuma, that can convey impurity. Deloxiva, because that measurement is not written in the Torah. The Tanya, because we learned in Abraisa. Bahem, the Torah says with regard to the sharets that you become impure within, with them. Yachol bekulan, you may have thought that because it says with them, that you only become impure if you touch in you know, if you touch them when they are complete, meaning you touch a a um, a mouse when it is f- complete. Tamalomar mayhem. So the verse also says from them, which always seems to convey this idea that you 
touch part of it, right? So you have touched the tail of the mouse, and the tail has been severed from the rest of the mouths. Yochel b'mikzasa. Now, if the Torah had only said from them, it might have been thought that you can contract tumor from even the minutest amount of a sharetz, of a creeping creature. Tamalomer bahim. Therefore, the Torah tells you with them to teach you that a minute, new, a very minute part does not contaminate. Ha'ketzad. So, so you have one verse that teaches us that a very minute part does not contaminate. But we have another verse that teach, another word that teaches us that you don't have to touch a. A, a creeping creature in its full state in order to become impure. So how do you reconcile the two? You have to touch a part of it that is like its entirety. So what did the sages decide? And our sages said that that minimum amount is a lentil size. Why did they choose a lentil size? Because then you can have a sharetz, a creeping thing, a lentil size of a creeping thing can be like the entirety of it. Why? Because you have the snail, when it is first hatched, it is the size of a lentil. So we see that you can have an entirety of a sharetz, of a creeping creature that is like a lentil. So we say, therefore, that if you touch the amount, of the, a lentil amount of a sharetz, you will become impure. Rabbi Yosibi Rabbi Huda, Omer Rabbi Yosibi Huda had a different... Um, a different um, conclusion as to what's the smallest amount of a sharetz that can be considered like the entirety. And he says it's kiznav halita'a. It's the size of the tail of a lizard. Okay. All right. Next part. Arayos. Now the Mishnah had said about arayos, which are illicit sexual relations. Um, and the Torah, the, 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 the Mishnah had said about them. The Mishnah had said about them that they have scriptural support. So the Gemara asked Mechdag Sivan, what are you talking about? There's much more than scriptural support for Arayos, for illicit sexual relations. There it's written explicitly. So they say, Lo nitzucha, no, it's necessary for... You know what? Let's stop here and we will continue from the very bottom of 11a in our next podcast. Um, have a good Shabbos. I'm recording this on a Thursday night, so have a good Shabbos. Shabbat Shalom. Thank you for listening.